What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to Fudge Muppet. I'm Scott. This is the Elder Scrolls Podcast, and I'm here with Michael and Drew, as always. And today, we have the long-awaited episode on the Red Guards. So which one of you guys would like to introduce us? Well, the Red Guards, similar to the Nords, but also quite different, are known as kind of the warrior race among the playable races on Tamriel. They have a very long history involving being a warrior and mastering the sword. And they are naturally gifted when it comes to strength and endurance. Um, and, which we don't really see in Skyrim to the same degree, but I think it's really cool. They're also considered quite a, a hardy people um, in the sense of having more endurance, you know, more HP. And they also have this uh, resist poison and resist disease in previous games of 75% in Skyrim. Uh, they got rid of that, or they, they nerfed it massively. I believe it was just resist poison 50% in Skyrim. I think so, yeah. But, yeah, they missed the 75% on both. But it's I, meant to represent that the Red Guards are very tough. They're very, like, athletic. Like, basically, the description is the most naturally talented warriors, too, which you can you sort of, like, the way I interpret it, it's just naturally they're pretty physically gifted. And, the you know, the time it takes to get... A warrior from A to B to like experience from a rookie to experience would be quicker compared to most. Well, what is um, and what I- is interesting, just quickly, and this isn't law at all. This is just my own food for thought. But it is funny to contemplate whether or not they're so gifted um, at being warriors because of all the warrior waves that escaped from Yakuta to Hammerfell. So if you actually think about like you know the genetic pool of the best fighters and best warriors mm. who then all left Yakuta in these warrior waves and set up shop. Um, which is a nice way of putting it. Yeah, well, Yakuta had very low birth rates, I think one of the sources said, and the fact that they were constantly at war, like several hundred years of war before before the empire was kind of unified, and then it immediately fell back into chaos. Mm -hmm. So you're going to end up with a small group of people surviving this, and then with the sinking of the continent, you know, they bring over their best warriors, and yeah, that it's kind of grown from there. And their, I mean, their best teachings as well, which is a, is a mm-hmm. big thing to consider. The Red Guards, they're not just naturally gifted. They don't just rely upon that. Um, they're also extremely disciplined when it comes to learning uh, martial warfare and different techniques. Obviously, there's the Book of Circles. If, if anything, they take a lot of inspiration from um, Japanese stuff. And kind of like samurai things, and um, I think it's, it's almost is it Masashi's book of five rings, um, book of uh, five rings, or something? yes, book of five rings. Yeah, it's almost like uh, the Miyamoto, uh, is it Miyamoto, or yeah, Miyamoto Masashi, yeah, yeah. yeah. Book um, of five but that's almost like a direct import. Um, I actually I did a, while, a video a while back on like uh, inspirations for um for the different things in um for different pieces of elder scrolls lore and so on and you look at the sword singers and the whole situation in yakuta and it's like it's like absolutely just a almost like a just taking japanese history and putting it there you have like even so apparently in in japanese the word kensei i don't know if that's the pronunciation properly or whatever the bet k-e-n-s-e-i means sword saint and and say <laughs> the Yakutan word means saints of the sword and so on. And the, these were actual names. And apparently, I think uh, Masashi was actually given that um, name as well. But also, if people want to look into it, um, they could also check out the video. But there's this whole, um, there's a period called the Sengoku period in Japan where, you know, you have the emperor as a head of state. But basically, the shogun had the real 
um, power in the, in that period. And the similar kind of thing happened with the rise of Mansell Senate in Yakuda. We could probably actually, it might be easier also just to, before we get too far ahead of ourselves with like comparisons, but like, let's actually talk about Red Guards and like their origin and so on. So Red Guards is the name, is a phonetic corruption of Regatta, which means warrior wave, which was basically in, I think it's the year 808 or something like that of the first era. So they're like the last race really out of the 10 playable races to sort of be on Tamriel. And they uh, basically come to Hammerfell, wipe out all of the Nidic beast folk people, goblins, orcs, all kinds of people that inhabited these lands. Um, and they established and made way for the nobility that were coming over. But the reason they initially left is because there was this like great sinking um, of Yakuda, which was their homeland that um, underwent other periods of war and stuff like that. But an interesting thing about that too is like Yakuta, obviously like any big sinking continent island, like there's um, correlation to like our mythic stories about um, Atlantis and so on. But also even the whole idea that there's the Orocalc Tower on Atlantis, there was in, um, on Yakuta, in it on Atlantis, there is this. Um, there was said to be, as described by Plato, I think in the Critias or something, um, that there was this big, like, uh, big um, idol, uh, not idol or column or something of uh, made of oracalcum, um, devoted to the, in the Temple of Poseidon or so on. But you can kind of see, it's like, oh, that's one of the Oracalc Tower and so on as mm. well. And mm. um, another interesting thing, actually, about the name Red Gods is um, apparently Red Guard myth holds that it was kind of a name taken in honor um, of their kind of final battle. Um, basically, like that they're the guard covered in <laughs> red blood or so- something mm. along those lines. Um, it says Red Guard myth considers it a legacy of the War of the Singers, seven battles that happened before the continent was destroyed. Um, obviously, they were all outnumbered by the army of Emperor Hera. Um, and then the, uh, they use the Hamel and Anvil, so Hammer and Anvil strategy, which apparently kills 300,000 people or something. So in the eyes of the citizens, their guardians were red with blood, and then they went off and became the red guards. <laughs> but um, mm. I wouldn't be surprised if it was just the regarder corruption, Regard. but there's just a little story to look into for anyone who's curious. Well, um, also just quick, I might actually just verbatim just read this because it actually sums up the history and the comparison pretty well for um, the Yakuta. So this is a previous thing, but it says originally Yakuta, this was my writing from ages ago, but originally Yakuta was united under a single emperor, but this eventually changed. And while emperors remained as figureheads, their powers were vastly limited. For 300 years, the nation descended into civil wars fought between provincial lords called Yokuda, who lived in their great stone castles of which towns started to grow from. So this is all in set in Yakuta. This mirrors the Sengoku period in Japan, where the emperor was officially the head of state, but his real power was fairly low by comparison to the shogun. Uh, In this period, the shogun struggled to maintain control over the daimyos, and that is like individual local lords in Japan, and this basically set the stage for an age of warring states. So we have Yakuta and Japan, both with an emperor that exists mainly as a ceremonial figurehead, and an island that has erupted into civil war because of local warlords, the Yakuta in Elder Scrolls, the daimyos in Japan. So um, on Yakuta, by the year 609 of the first era, a man named Mansell Sessnit had fought for eight years to gain almost um, total control of the Yakuta empire and he was called the elden yokuda similar to a shogun a military dictator year 617 he was assassinated and replaced by a commoner called randick torn randick continued the work 
of Mansell, and he introduced new laws that made it so only sword singers may carry swords, distinguishing them from the rest of the population. This would be known as Torn Sword Hunt. Now, similar to this in Japan, towards the end of the Sengoku period, there was a lord called Oda Nobunaga. Mm-hmm. Succeeded in, he, and he succeeded in uniting much of Japan, but he too was assassinated. Um, well, he was trapped in a temple, um, lit on fire during a coup, and he committed seppuku, a ritual suicide. Close enough, but Oda was succeeded by uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who was like Randic Torn, born a commoner. And guess what he also did like Randic Torn? He instituted laws which restricted the possession of swords to samurai only. So the, the allegory is um, very clear there. And um, then obviously there's the there's the book um, comparison of the, the Book of Circles by Frander Hunding and... and um, uh, the Book of Five Rings by Musashi. Um, uh, but both of those two characters, too, are comparisons. They both had noble ancestry. They watched their fathers die when they were young. Um, you know, Frander Hunding was undefeated for like 90 duels by the time he was 30. Musashi had something like 61 as well. Mm. But um, it's funny because like you have all of those Moroccan aesthetics and stuff and the North African kind of like... Um, imagery and architecture and, and you know pulls for bits from the middle east but like if you look at like the foundational part of their like yakuda's history and also their culture a lot of it's actually rooted in japanese mm. stuff mm. i just wanted to it interject is. there and say i actually read the book of five rings it was a bit of a meme it's, it's kind it's kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah it's kind of like the um the art of war where people like to extrapolate more than the book actually means it's like Dude, it's about killing people with swords. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's not about a whole lot else. And there's heaps of vague stuff in there too. Like, oh, I have this really super secret technique that kills anyone. And you, you've got to figure it out if you want to be a good sword master. And it's like, okay. Well, kind of like Yakuda, one of the big reasons during this period of time Japan was so isolated is because they were constantly fighting between themselves. But when you had Hideyoshi come along and kind of the country became unified, they turned their attention on going to Korea as well, which in the end didn't work out. But it's kind of like a parallel, but almost the opposite of what happens with the Red Guards in that there is a potential nuclear explosion and then Uh, they invade a nearby mainland, except they were successful in taking it. So it kind of becomes their version. And just to clarify, that's like comparing the um, Pancrato sword technique of the shihai this massive big you know and say sort of sword singer power that destroy the continent it's one of the explanations for why um it's uh destroy- and i think it's even so that it's said to be split the atom isn't mm-hmm. it or something on yeah i shouldn't level. really drop that bomb without us explaining it but you know <laughs> it, there's like the parallels are really clear i mean even the, the big argument is that most of it kind of comes from explanations in vivek's sword meeting with cyrus Mm-hmm. which is out of law Michael Kirkbride text. But even in, in canon texts like Red Guards, their history and their heroes, you have really kind of clear um, suggestions that this is what happens. You know, you've got Emperor Hera, who, who was obviously the, the essentially a dictator who fought against the sword singers and before they eventually fled. And then you have this like rebel group of Ansai who rise up. And by using a, a previously unknown technique where the fallout for it would be... F- phenomenal they use that and coincidentally yukuda is completely ruined Mm. yeah so all signs do seem to point to it well anyway after yukuda kind of sunk and they they basically headed in warrior waves to tamriel and they went to hammerfell and they basically 
in short, kind of started exterminating everything in Hammerfell, um, as many races throughout Elder Scrolls history do. Uh, there were needs in Hammerfell, um, there were orcs around the place, um, there were even elves supposedly along the coast. Mm. And you have to remember too that in Yakuda, um, the ancient red guards of the Yakudans were often fighting um, with a group called the left-handed elves who caused them, you know, a lot of strife throughout history. And so kind of similar to the Nords, they weren't fond of elves. Um, mm. And so they wiped elves out when they landed in Hammerfell um, and even uh, goblins. There were big goblin groups and goblin invasions going on, but essentially they um, wipe it all out and set up camp. Well, and there is sources there too um, that uh, the goblins of the first era in Hammerfell at the time were much more uh, similar to in size to orcs and so on. And they were like, you know, big and homegrown, not so much the smaller goblins that you see today. That, that, Weren't so there that's even enough. larger ones, these giant goblins? It might, yeah, probably. Or are they the but, ones you mean? Well, yeah, these are the large goblins and so on because there's... there's um, I think it's a priest saying an ESO that talks about it and so on. But this, I used that um, once in a previous video to explain as a potential cause as to why orcs were conflated with goblin kind early on in history. Because back in those days and for a lot of you know thousands of years, goblins would have been, um, if those sources are 100% believed, much uh, more similar in stature and size, you know, big green and ugly kind of thing. Um, and then, therefore, they could just be conflated and grouped in with the same thing, whereas the goblins of today are much smaller and so on. But that's where the pair, like the association came about. I mean, I'd be curious to know how successful the warrior waves would have been when we know they obviously succeeded against the goblins, but it was a seriously close fight at some points in time, especially when you'd, you didn't have that many red guards coming over compared to the, the groups that would have been living there. But the Duraki needs were fairly prosperous in, was it the Craglorn region? Um, yeah. And we normally see needs as being very much kind of, they end up being the pushovers of usually the elven group that comes along. But the Duraki needs were really prosperous, but it just so happened that at the time when the when the warrior ways came over, there was a lot of strife internally in the Duraki need mm. society because there was like a what's his name i think i've got it here somewhere via Maril, the betrayer slew the council of needed kings conveniently just as they're <laughs> dealing with this yakudan onslaught so you know Timing. perhaps if the duraki were more prosperous at that moment in time maybe we'd have a completely different hammerfell maybe maybe perhaps and i mean you could also say too it's like if the uh if the dwemer didn't disappear like a hundred years mm. beforehand or something it could have been a different story as well yeah because Hammerfell's covered in dwemer ruins which the red guards could i guess benefit from um so the idea that to. Hammerfell would be fairly boring kind of desert not much going on that's de definitely not the case there's many cultures and plus they'll be adding more i'm sure but there are many cultures that would have been prospering there they just so happen to have mostly mm. left at this point it's funny and i guess sorry speaking of the goblins i just found the ghost um of uh flint tooth war chief you meet and he really does look like a like a goblin but kind of like you were saying scott more like an orc in the sense that he has this um more humanoid uh, player character appearance but the face is just a little bit more shriveled with a like a pointier nose. Kind of like one of the presets you can actually pick in Skyrim for orcs if you wanted to try and make a goblin, like put the mm. weight down real low and make the facial features pointier. Yeah. Um, 
Well, to contextualize to a little bit more so we can sort of start talking about uh, culture more and so on, uh, following along with that history. So the regatta come, they wipe out everything there and they basically carve out this sort of isolationist place. Basically, they have new Yakuta and it happens so happened that there's deserts and stuff which they're quite familiar with from Yakuta and so on so they've come over they've carved out themselves this land and the royal class um, come across as well the uh, Natutambu um, and basically what happens is uh, you know a little bit of time goes by but you do get this sort of um, fundamental division in Red Guard society between the crowns and the forebears and the easiest way to understand this is that the crowns are basically the closest things to Yakuta culture and religion just imported straight in and the forebears is kind of like Yakuta light it's like they get influenced by a lot of the um, other empires and stuff and especially during the second empire of Riemann um, when uh, they got conquered um by Riemann and so on. Um, the forebears were sort of, a, they're, they're generally, you're more like cosmopolitan, happy to work with other people and so on. And you do see this, we'll talk, when we're talking about the pantheons and religion, we'll probably talk more about the crowns because that's more relevant stuff because the forebears is that just, but just with, you know, some Yakuta namings and flavors and some of the parts that um, are left over, but it's it's functionally, so, you know, you'll have like Morwara and Mara, but there's a difference between mm. like the Yakutans, you, the crowns don't necessarily see them as the same kind of entity. Whereas the forebears sort of a little bit more, you know, and same with like Tuwaka and RK, there's like actual fighting over the connection. People really don't like it, especially yeah. Yeah, it, the crowns. What, what's quite interesting actually is that um, what's confusing to be honest um, is that in the third era, there was this group that came uh, called the Lutonics. Um, yeah. And they were trying to basically find a middle ground between the forebears and the crowns. Um, but what I don't understand is it said that they kind of, you know, they were kind of for the progressive and cosmopolitan ideas that the forebears had while retaining the kind of strong respect for their past that they had, which makes me just think, are the forebears really Yakuta light or have they fallen so much further than that? Um depending on your perspective of Fallen or changed so much that the Lutonics really are like an in-between, if you know what I mean. Because if they were really mm. just like, oh, we, we still respect the Yakutan way, we're just a little bit different, um, I wouldn't see the need or th for someone to create such a movement. I feel like yeah, the you, idea you is, as well argue. as as time goes by, the divide would only grow. I mean, if you just think mm. about it logically, because inherently progressive kind of um, ideals they lean to change. And so the longer you have in a passage of time, the more change will occur. So I'm sure when the division happened, perhaps it wasn't as large as it is by the third era. And oh, it yeah. Would, yeah, and it would You'd be interesting. Probably. It just makes sense. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if we get an Elder Scrolls Six set in Hammerfell or in High Rock and Hammerfell, just how different the two groups have actually become over time. It's like, too, there's that, there's that, um, the other thing that sort of probably, there's probably more like practical reasons, too, that helped cause a further cultural divide. But the big thing is the forebears are more willing to work with foreign powers and sort of join in with Tamriel society broader, whereas the crowns have been more resistant, more isolationist, that they don't want, like, obviously they do like trade and, and, and so on, but they're just a bit more like, we really want to, you know, live in our bubble of, of it's very much a imported. geographical thing as well. You can, mm. you can see why things do end up like this because you know sentinel being the kind of crown's headquarters generally 
it's like you know it's it's out there as far away from, as far away from the mainland as you can get across the Iliac Bay from the Bretons who they've kind of had a long history of warfare with whereas if you're kind of generally more um inland where there's borders to to High Rock and Skyrim and Cyrodiil and you know um Valenwood it's all there sorry not Valenwood but you know close enough um you can see why there'd be much more of a mishmash of kind of cultural beliefs yeah absolutely because it because that's that's the thing too we've mentioned it in other podcasts too but it's just like and i think they should take this into account when world building places and so on but sometimes your proximity to other cultures are far closer than your own so for example like how windhelm is far closer to blacklight mm-hmm. than it is to even white run so you know like rehard is like just over the border from anvil like yeah in it, in it is interesting like, be- to think because you you do see it um in our own history where kind of different cultures or groups will go and kind of conquer or invade another territory only to find that their own culture becomes affected by the one that they you know tried to invade mm. a lot more than they probably expected um and you know with the forebears being the descendants of the warriors and going on and conquering more it's only natural that that happened yeah yeah um do we want to talk about uh, maybe get into the religion and stuff? Because that obviously religion informs a lot of the cultures and stuff of each of the uh, places. So I feel like it's easiest to start with the Yakutan sort of um, belief. And then you can kind of, we can talk about four bells, uh, four bears as a footnote afterwards. But um, what's interesting about the red guards um, the, generally uh, we've, we've, we've talked about this plenty of times before but there's the sort of Anuic and Padmaic sort of system of belief like you know generally you know it's it that reflects their view of the Lorcanic entity whatever name that might go by and also like creation and mortality as kind of a whole it's generally whether you see you know everything um, mortality and creation as a, as a trick or some sort of like you know great and bountiful thing and they see it as a trick which, yeah, which is so quite interesting strange. because they're, I suppose, you know, you consider them a race of men, despite them not coming from Atmora, they came from Yakuda. Yeah. Um, and they have the kind of elvish kind of uh, flavor. Anuic. Uh, yeah, the Anuic yeah. flavor when it comes to their belief well, and their origins. Almost almost an extra level as well, because you essentially have their equivalent to Oriel creating Lorcan personally. And then it, that, that Lorcan, that which is called Sep, ends up being the kind of troublemaker. But you know, I guess you can take that all the way to the top with Anu having Padamias. It's like created reflection. It's yeah. other. Well, well, let's start with you've got um, so the uh, Anu Padame kind of dichotomy is generally how people understand all of the Elder Scrolls mythology and so on. Uh, as a general rule, in the Red Guard mythology, they kind of see this as as one um, being called Satakal, and sometimes then there's in the text and so on, they will go like Satak, which is kind of like Anu, and um, Akel, Akel, which is basically his yeah. hungry stomach and so on. And that basically makes this snake eat itself over and over and over. And there's all these spirits that exist um, in this, but they don't want to, every time he eats himself and sheds anew, they all die until you have Ruptga, or also called Torpapa, who discovers a way of the um, walkabout, which is a kind of described as a moving sideways or something. At strange angles to like yeah. escape the cycle. And then you end up in a place eventually created, which is the far shores. Yeah. Well, so he, they, 
and then Rupka basically so there's this whole concept of like the the soul trade or something and basically being able to survive these different kalpas essentially um and each time Sadakal eats himself and then begins anew but Rupka is surviving and he set the stars and stuff to teach other spirits how to do the same thing um but eventually he built out of the det- uh, the detritus of old um world skins he created Sep um but Sep had the uh was kind of it was innately kind of corrupted because of the uh, hunger of the of the Satakal's stomach. So he then um, try, he tricked a bunch of other spirits into sort of creating this other world. It's like, oh, this walkabout thing, this sort of, sorry, system of uh, moving, it's, it's too hard. Let's do this instead. But it was a big trick instead to create Mundus, essentially, mortality. So he goes and gathers up a bunch of old skins of like dead worlds and puts them into a big skin ball. Ba- yep. basically and says let's which, let's live here <laughs> which can kind of be you can see parallels between that and calling mundus a daedric realm you know if, if you have the idea that um daedra lords create their realms and they often mimic um mundus which you know a more padamite depending on your view you might consider that to be the pure place and then realms of oblivion are copies of that but if the idea is that mundus is just a load of old dead skins put together it's just kind of like a a copy of like the glory of anu um and 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 a furious i think then you can see how they have such a negative view yeah for sure um i was just gonna say i think it's good to kind of uh conclude it by actually reading from the monomyth um which is basically says so he tricked the spirits told them that they could reach the new world by making one out of the old these spirits loved this way of thinking as it was easier no more jumping from place to to place many spirits joined in believing this was good thinking tall papa just shook his head pretty soon the spirits on the skin ball started to die because they were very far from the real world of sadakal and they found that it was too far to jump into the far shores now so basically they end up saying please take us back um tall papa says no you have to learn a new way to follow the stars to the far shores now and that is essentially how they become trapped but sep apparently needed more punishment and so tall papa squashed this snake with a big stick and uh the hunger fell out of sep's dead mouth and was the only thing left of the second serpent the cool thing there too is that idea that adamantine, the tower. adamantine tower, yeah. like the final like stick i just really i love when you have different cultural like ideas about it i don't know it's just really cool way and of the fact it. that the hunger remains in this story is very much like how the heart of lorcan remains despite lorcan himself being mm. killed you know that continues to exist um and i mean i've said this before and um you you can kind of see a potential connection but with rupga tall papa kind of finding a way to stride sideways almost to get out of the line of fire when the world eats itself again is kind of like how the the high elves have finaster who teaches them to live longer by shortening their stride you can see how that's yeah. like similar to the way yeah. the gods become eternal become you know they don't get recycled In- by interesting, walking a different way interesting motif too because you even have like um the the six walking ways mm-hmm. of ascendancy and so on this sort of idea of steps and movement and so on as i mean it's literally called the walkabout allegory. too mm. yeah that, exactly that process. yeah so um but yeah and then so the, and the, we end up with the Yakutan mm-hmm. gods that we have. So so if you were to go to like the the varieties of faith in Tamriel breaks it up um as the the, the eight of the crowns. And you have Satakal, which is the kind of god of everything, the big the big snake, the Ouroboros essentially. And then you have Rupta, the big chief deity and also called Tall Papa, right? And 
we, you know, you know what he does. Um, these also, you know, time god kind of stuff. Comparatives you can compare to Akatosh or Oriel or not. Um, there is Tuwaka, which is the tricky god, the god of souls. Um, and I love this. <laughs> I don't know why. I just really <laughs> like this. Tuwaka, before the creation of the world, was the god of nobody really cares. When Tall Papa <laughs> undertook the creation of the walkabout, Tuwaka found a purpose. He became the caretaker of the far shores and helped gods find the way to the afterlife. He just kind of like took on the role that no one else wanted and really found himself in it. Because I, I, I'm writing um, the, the gods series, so like different videos on, on like different cultures, gods and stuff now. And an interesting like sort of uh, pickup is that generally um, men only, like RK as an entity really only appears in um, the, uh, in the mythologies of men and so on. Whereas they don't really have them in the elven mythologies and then RK... Um, RK also being called the mortals god and so on and Tuaka. It's, it's basically like the have worshipping a god that venerates somewhat the cycle of life and death. It's kind of antithetical to the kind of desire for immortality that the elves have, which is strange that the Bosmer actually do have RK in their um, in their pantheon. But there's a whole Bosmer video that will explain that. Um, go into more detail on that. But it is just interesting that that, that the RK, the Tuaka or whatever, is considered. Plus, um, I would say the Bosmer almost, in their own unique way as elves, have a connection to the land, which is obviously Mundus, than most elves would. You know, if you asked a high elf where they feel connected, they feel connected to Aphirius. They want to return to their immortality, immortality to their godhood, whereas the Bosmer may not necessarily want that. I'm writing the Bosma video now, so I won't do where this too hard, but there are some interesting things that makes me think. I'm like, are the Bosma even like Anuic, or do we just assume because they've imported a lot of Somerset influence mm. or something? But like, if you were to read the Ifri story and their, re- re- you know, reverence for creation and so on, like they might say like, oh, Lorcan tricked everything and that's how we all got here, but they they aren't pissed about it. Mm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're pretty happy with creation as Ifri it is. Ifri is essential to the fact that Mundus even exists at all. Mm. And, you know, and he's not perfectly pure either he's depending on the culture he's he's been corrupted by namira things like that you know so it's it's definitely not black and white yeah by any means but you know like with gods like rk or tuwaka as we're talking about if you only have gods if you don't have a mortal realm if you don't have mortality they do they have no purpose you know what purpose is the cycle of life and death when everyone is eternal so that that's why they kind of come along later yeah, and um, next we have Zet, God of Farms, which uh, people compare to, to Xenathar or something like that. It's not necessarily explicit, but um, he's a god of agriculture. Interestingly... Which when you... Oh, go on. I was going to say, Zet actually has a daughter um, called Zeki, or it's spelt with Qs, so it could be Zeki. Uh, the Madonna of Tears, water goddess and daughter of mm. Zet. Um, and apparently Zet kind of um, left Hughes Bane or has forsaken it. And she takes pity on them and um, kind of helps them. The lady in the cistern statue. No one knows what that is. So it's actually listed under a possi- as a possible statue of Zeki, um, but also a possible statue of Leki. <laughs> so mystery mm. statue. Well, you can, you can see why Zet and Zeki would be important to a culture that has historically never really had very arable land it's like uh, you can't really grow crops that well um if you you're going to have a goddess of rain for well, sure that, and there's another agriculture 
just another little tad on to tie on there, but um, he it said that Zet renounced his father, Tall Papa, um, after the world was created, and that's why Tall Papa makes it so hard to grow food. So it explains like part of the arid land, and that's why he made it apparently hard for Hughes Bane uh, to yeah. grow food as well. And then the daughter decides to go against her kind of creator and <laughs> take pity on them. Mm. Yeah. We ne- and then next you have Morwa, the teat god, which is also compared <laughs> to um, Mara, but Yakutan fertility goddess, fundamental deity in the Yakutan pantheon and favorite of Tall Papa's wives. She's still worshipped in areas of Hammerfell, including Stross Makai, always portrayed as forearmed so she can grab more husbands. There's also statues of her depend- um, depicted with um, uh, beehive, mm-hmm. And like honeybees and mother, and that's another comparison. What, what's I feel the, like I've brought this yeah, up a billion have, times, but that Nedic, that Nedic bee thing, it's just an interesting um, fat mother bee goddess yeah. could be There's very compared to There's a much to stronger emphasis on procreation, giving birth with Morwa than Mara. Like Mara is obviously the mother, but the, the, the emphasis on having arms and like in statues, she's holding a child with mm. one arm. She's got a full stomach. Um where she's you know she's heavily pregnant in the statue and then you know all of this stuff it's like yeah it's all about breeding yeah with, um, with more <laughs> she's um less uh submissive and breedable yes <laughs> she's actually she doesn't look submissive <laughs> she's lustier than mara but um mm. less so than debella according to a source yeah. uh, which makes because i guess debella wouldn't sense. be so much about the you know, nine months waiting to have a kid. It's more about just the lovemaking. Yeah. See, because, yeah, because Mara is, is you know, they consider a universal goddess. She's pretty much in every single pantheon. It's, I find it really interesting that Debella really is like a Nordic origin thing. Like it's not found in, uh, um, you know, elven pantheons and stuff like that. It really is a thing of man. And I guess, to be honest, if you look at Debella even, a lot of her stuff is of, you know, of beauty and, you know, even comparing the sort of lustful sort of like pleasures of the flesh and stuff like that. It's all a very like, you know, things that you enjoy within creation and the beauty of creation. You know, so it's ma- a very... maybe if, let's decriminalize Debella, but maybe if the elves had Debella in their Adric pantheon, they wouldn't have fallen to the temptations of the Daedra in the first place. They'd have some something to kind of placate them. Maybe mm. they shouldn't be so chaste and they'll have some uh, <laughs> post-nut clarity and be able to make better decisions. Perhaps. There's also Tava, the uh, bird god, Yakudin spirit of the air. And you may be thinking, why is the air so important? And that basically, in a way... You could say traces back to the fact that they were sailors um, and still are yeah. great sailors. And you need, you know, favorable winds to uh, travel in a ship and make sure everything's okay. Uh, people also kind of see her, well, not the not the crowns, but uh, the forebears and others often basically relate her to Kinnereth. Yeah. And what is also, I if you um, have a look at it, there there is a uh, in the Elder Scrolls Online Thieves Guild um, expansion. There is a really cool armor that sort of riffs off like um, the Polish hussars with the big mm. wings at the back, but using that as like a, a Tava thing is really cool. Really, like a, I haven't seen symbol. that. I'd like to see that. It's if you it's on um the if you just go to the Tava US page itself, there's a picture down the bottom. Right, I'm gonna check that out. That, that sounds really cool. But um. Yeah, and there's that. But then, now, this is where you don't, you actually, the comparisons kind of stop with the crowns. You have Onsi, who is a war god, 
for the Bone Shaver, notable warrior god of the Yukuna Regatta. Onsi taught mankind how to pull their knives into swords, which I really think is a cool. I love sometimes of those like uh, kind of like historical explanations for things. But if you think about how, if you go back to like Bronze Age or when we humans were working with poorer materials, like all the blades are shorter and so on. And getting long swords was like, you know, when smithing became, you know, far more advanced. It's kind of idea, oh, this is the god that taught them how to pull them into swords. Mm. But like, you could also say, oh, is that actually just like, you know, new smithing methods and mm. new materials? Or- well, I've heard somewhere that they actually have something unique about their swords that makes <laughs> it different to other swords, but I can't remember what it is. Yeah. They're curved. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> curved swords. <laughs> I thought we were going to dodge it having to say it. No. <laughs> there's, there's no escaping it. And um, next we have Diagna, Orichalc god of the Sideways Blade, a hoary, thuggish cult of red guards that originated in Yakuta during the 27 snake folk slaughter, which, you know, people have compared to. Um, so, yes, when you hear snake folk, that's what you think of. But Diagna was an avatar of the Hoonding, the Yakutan god of Make Way. Um, and he was instrumental in defeating the left-handed elves and brought Orichalc weapons, like, you know, made of Orichalcum, to uh, the Yakutans, which helped them win the fight. But what's interesting is, more interesting really there to talk about is this Hoonding, which is sort of like a uh, the Yakutan spirit of perseverance over infidels. And in a way, it's kind of... It's like a god, but it doesn't seem as personified because it's personified through the avatars. There seems to be a little... in Maybe comparative... Like you could compare to the Riddlethar kind of in the way that it's more like a cosmic energy somewhat. Or even in the way that Lorcan is like dead and sustaining the world and his Shazarines. But mm-hmm. you need the avatars to really have his conscious sort of will done, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's kind of reminiscent of the Shezarines, just without the connection to Sep. Like, I mean, if there is a connection to Sep, we'll have to look for it. But, um, like, the idea that the Hoonding comes at, at a time of need, and it's happened if... It's, I mean, we say it's happened. We don't know for sure it's happened. It's just kind of like it enters folklore as the Hoonding arriving when, you know, a hero comes on. Kind of like Cyrus being an example, and, and they say Friend Our Hunding was as well. I mean, yeah, you know, the name find- says a lot. The exact quote uh, during the Cyber Wars for there's um, what is it? Variety's faith in the empire. It, the actual other book. Hold on, Hunding. There is, um, yeah. It's interesting. So it says in Tamrielic history, he's it's only happened three times: twice in the first era during the Regatta invasion, and once during the Tiber War. In his last incarnation, Hunding was said to either be a sword or a crown or both. And it, you know, you people could think like, "Oh, a physical crown," but it could actually be a crown, as in this is interpreted to be Cyrus. Yeah, yeah. You know, the physical. Um, he's part of the crowns fighting against Tiber Septim and with the sword and. Um, but yeah, yeah, and Prince Ator, who yeah. was who was a crown crown prince. But but it's a cool uh, a, a cool concept. Um, there's also Leki. The, these are sort of your additional like red guard cults. Leki, the daughter of Tall Papa, um, uh, goddess of aberrant swordsmanship, um, and she's basically their swordmasters were known to be skilled in the best known cuts, apparently. And she Leki introduced the ephemeral faint, basically a sword god mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. a god who personifies swordship yeah. for the for the yakutas we've kind of done hoonding um but yeah. there's maluk the uh horde king 
also known as, uh, which is basically an enemy god. It's basically Malakath. This is a, a god which of makes sense orcs and their history. Yeah, the goblins of fighting goblins. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then Sepwi kind of covered as part of it, but it's it's Lorcan to in the Yakutan mythology. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's them. And if if we did like to, just to quickly touch on the forebears, there it is essentially the eight divines. Like they, you'll go from like Akatosh, they have Stendar and so on, but they'll call Zenithar Zet or Mara Morwar, and they added. You know, they've got Debella and so on. Um, but out, outside of that, it's pretty. It's just basically more imperial flavored Yakutan kind of mm. mix. Well, one thing we should mention as well, because it's related to spiritual matters, is that the Red Guards, um, they definitely worship their ancestors quite a bit. Not in the same way that other races do, but, um, you know, them being buried in the right way and having Tuwaka involved, which is basically like, you know, RK and RK's rights, uh, is very, very important. Um, they want to make sure that they go to the far shores. They don't want to. They want to make sure necromancers don't mess with them. And this has actually been, I suppose, somewhat of a hole in the defense of the Red Guards because they are distrustful, similarly to Nords, of magic. Um, mm. You know, to a significant extent, and so much so that even a group known as the Ashbar, who basically exist to hunt the undead, are frowned upon. Um, because, you know, they're killing the honored, you know, the, the interned, the dead. Yeah. And um, people want nothing to do with them. It's kind of like disgusting, but they're tolerated because they're like a force of good that's needed in the world, but still disrespected. Yeah. It's it's a bit... Uh, it's one of those weird things. Like, I can't really imagine, like, imagine your village is being, like, attacked by a zombie and you refuse to, like, kill it because it came from, like, the local burial tomb or whatever. And it could be someone you know, <laughs> you know? Touch the undead. Yeah. I don't know if it goes to that level. But, um, yeah. Um, Red Guards, um, it, you know, it ebbs and flows. And, you know, for gameplay reasons in ESO, magic is is more prevalent. But um, generally, Red Guards are supposed to be like, they're not, you know, like you said, not uh, like the Nords, not too big on magic. And um, you can kind of see, like, because... You know, they are the absolute martial race, you know, and even their magic, which actually I'm surprised we've gotten this long without talking about it, but their big magic, their equivalent of the, the their version of the Thum almost is this is sword singing, which is this idea that you can manifest a Shihai, which is like a spirit sword from like your very soul. Like, and this is through a very meditative kind of introspective process. Perhaps, did you see the, the cringe in Elder Scrolls Online with the, the singing, the actual like singing? Yeah, I, I I feel like I, I don't when I you hit remember, sword singing. You remember Xbox Connect voice command thumbs? Are you going to be sitting there playing Elder Scrolls <laughs> Six singing a song I, at the TV? It, it does it does make sense though because you know you, yeah. you you've got the ideas that initially like I think I think there's a quote around here somewhere that said like our people were once artisans, poets, and scholars, but the ever evolving strife made the way of the sword inevitable. The song of the blade through the air, through flesh and bone, its ring against armor. It was an answer to our prayers. So the, I guess the idea that it it was it wasn't necessarily people born to born and trained to be warriors that were the ones who kind of founded this magic it, it was the people who were devoted to the arts that ended up finding this kind of warfare through meditation so you can kind of see that there would actually yeah, be I, singers and artists i think involved. it would be a lot cooler if if they were going to go with like literal singing to summon it or involved in the process if it was some kind of 
um, unique Mongolian throat singing or something instead yeah. of like singing a little S- spardic song. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine it kind of like, you know, how if some people are meditating and they, they intone or chant certain things, yeah. kind of like mantras to make it happen. That's how I imagine I it anyway. I always imagined it as in the sword, like literally the 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 seeing of it in the way you know when you like whip yeah. something through the air and you're whipping so fast and all that and it's making all those whoosh sounds. It's almost like a song in like all the mm. different. But I don't know. I thought like it, anyway, it's 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 all fine and and like in the same way that like I understand why they have like a physical sort of like you know Final Fantasy looking kind of sword versus you know the idea that it's like like a trail of like mist or blinding light like you can't really like see it even. Well, they have all these hundreds of stances, defensive and offensive and stuff. And you can almost see it. It's like, oh, it's like their chord progressions. You know, they know all of these routines and then they make mm. music with their swords. And, and it does it does match in terms of like thematically, you know, tonal architecture, the thorm, all of it to do with singing um, and like the voice. And if you idea that, you know, Elder Scrolls is a song or something like that, you know. It's all vibrations, bro. Yeah, it all, it all, it, it all fits. But um, yeah. But yeah, so they're there. They're like the, uh, the also another sort of uh, thing. I wish they didn't do in the lore as much, but it's like, oh, the sword singers are all gone now. In the same way as all the cool Nordic tongues are gone, like all of the best stuff is in the ancient history, and part of that is for gameplay Sorry, reasons. Back. But it's, it's um, <laughs> funny. It's funny as well because similarly to the Nords who don't like magic, but then of course the Nords did have kind of magical stuff and these. Um, for some reason, I was going to say uh, clever men, right? Yeah. yeah, I was about yeah. to say wise men. <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> they're not the wise men. Um, the ancient Alakir had um, powerful wizards as well, but they were very rare. Yakutan war wizards um, were part of armies, mm. but they were like a rare thing. So it's interesting to think. And like, like you know, like we just talked about summoning a sword, it sounds pretty magical. Um, yeah. But it's all about perspective, I guess. In the same way dark elves don't consider them communing or even bringing back their the ghost of their ancestors as necromancy like dark elves are very against necromancy um but other races look at that and go that's necromancy so it's yeah it's kind of like the adric equivalent to um daedric summoning you know the idea that if they're channeling their souls into their sword they're almost in tune with the dream sleeve you know as opposed to reaching into oblivion and forging a sword from celtic creation and a bound sword Mm. They do it I, I, the Anuic way. I actually tweeted that not long ago saying we need some oh. better designs for bound weapons because um, they. It just I find it silly that they look just like the Daedric that you forge in that style in-game. Mm-hmm. It'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Even if they... Obviously, you know, it's from Oblivion. You can make it Daedric in appearance, but stylistically different to the Daedric you mm. forge would be pretty cool. Kind of yeah. give you the impression that you're actually getting a different Daedric vestige each time that's kind of been forced into serving you. Yeah, just, you know? just something mm. to set it apart. Mm. But yeah, anything else to say about the Red Guards? Well, they do, uh, there's some miscellaneous things. Apparently they have a great affinity for horses and they breed horses oh, like the Yakutan Charger. That reminds but, me, yeah, that yeah. reminds me. Um, people, actually, little fun fact, the Yakutans that you know the warrior wave apparently are not the first uh to to arrive in hammerfell or to arrive on tamriel there's this group of horsemen in in high rock i believe who were there a bit earlier um let me find what their name is hmm. well you t- source bro yeah no no i'm gonna <laughs> this is yeah. not a source trust me bro i'm, I'm gonna well, just 
I was just going to mention. Sorry, is yours related to horses still? <laughs> no, it's not related to horses. <laughs> Good guess. I, was just, no. I will, well, I don't know how much of a um, digression this would be, but I was just going to talk about that. Um, in terms of like mapping with the stars and the stars have been important to them. And I like how like, you know, uh, it was said that Rutger set the stars for the spirits and so on, but the stars are what they obviously used to, um, you know, advance their navigating forward. And that's how they got to when they've got complex star maps and that's how they got to Hammerfell from Yakuta and so on. And it's just another, like they've got a lot of astrologers um, mm. and so on there too. I mean, we like, we can also get into their fairly long history on Tamriel or maybe that's more of a topic for for we're talking about Hammerfell, but I Perhaps. mean, they're, co- they're constantly at war. I mean, like one example is like, if, if you're wondering why the Bretons and the Red Guards kind of have historic conflicts, especially the crowns in Sentinel and whatnot, is that, you know, Orsinium became a bit of a kind of a, uh, what's what do you call it? A, an enemy for both the Bretons and the, the Red Guards. So they were able to kind of team up to deal with Orsinium. But at the time you had a king in Daggerfall called Joel who was pretty ruthless so he you know he made an alliance with the red guards when they were fairly fresh they'd only been on the continent for around 100 years at the time and then the the king of daggerfall managed to organize a a duel to decide the fate of orsinium between the strongest orc baloth blood tusk and gaiden shinji who's a you know a legendary red guard um but instead of letting them fight it out king joel just had them all executed slaughtered a load of red guards just turned on them and ever since there's there's probably been a bit of a lack of trust yeah well he tried to invade too and they get it's then it stopped at the bank get stopped pass. by mckellalecki and and yeah. some of the sh- sword maidens um yeah so using their shihai but yeah so you can see why they would have beef so to speak well speaking of uh, meat are you two about are you ready to get red field on horses? curved swords <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so so we know that the the whole warrior wave um the sinking of the homeland happened around year 792 of the first era um the the waves to hammerfell were continuing um in 808 of the first era then there is this text from the elder scrolls online our favorite place for lore uh, called the Horse Folk of Silver Hoof. And basically it's saying, you know, that um, it sounds unbelievable, but there's this lost colony of red guards on the northern coast of High Rock um, that, that are these horsemen. That, and they originally came from Yakuta, um, although they have unavoidably been Bretonized over the centuries by contact with the Nidic folk who surround them. Um, but they have, they still have some like Yakutan speech and things like that. Like they have words still. Um However, the elders of the tribe maintain detailed oral accounts of their genealogy and from the number of generations they record, it is possible to date their arrival on the shores of Tamriel to the early 6th century of the first era. So, you know, in the 500s. Um, This was a period of upheaval in High Rock when the Dereni hegemony was in its final death throes and the Breton kingdoms were just establishing themselves, a time when a colony of determined settlers could find a niche and establish itself before it would be driven out. There you go. There you go. So I guess it's not like 100% confirmed, but there's my source. It's like one of those unreliable narrator, like, "Mm, sounds interesting, could be things. I mean, we do talk about Yakuta because we don't know much about Yakuta. We talk about it as a very holistic thing. Like what what happens on the mainland may not necessarily affect some of the smaller islands because it's like a, a large archipelago with with several different cultures on these different islands. And even some of them, there's the idea that 
not all of Yakuda was completely destroyed when this cataclysm happened. And some some of the islands may still be intact with people on it, etc., etc. I like so, to think it's even a kind of cool idea that like it did sink, but like the tallest mountaintops became like islands and stuff. <laughs> still, like so they're actually up there. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to say with, with the sinking of Yakuda. You've got the kind of cross between what's literal and what's you know figurative and what's a bit mythical because you obviously have the idea of. Um, you know, in the in the Anuad, you have huge portions of Tamriel sinking into the sea. You have the idea that Old Meris sank into the sea, which it's always been my opinion that Old Meris never existed, and the sinking of Old Meris was was representative of their culture dividing and separating, and them getting them straying further from their gods. Um, Yakuda, it seems like there's it's much more likely that something did physically happen there, but it's all it's always going to be hard to know for sure. Yeah, oh. I, 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 I'm just recently doing some of the religion things. Just a touch on Aldmeris there is that like the elves, because we like often that's like presented as like, oh yeah, that's what happened. But like elves, maybe like far more deluded than you actually think about the reality. Like I no longer really treat the elven thing as oh that's likely what happened or anything like that. Because even the concept of Aldmeris, um, like being like that, it, like they were, I'm sure, would believe it to be a very physical place or something or something that exists like there's and there's just there's there's quite a few layers of um delusion throughout their their religion and stuff like even that like the idea that every single elf came from them like we still don't have a direct a to b connection to dwemer or falmer and also the bosma claim that they were shaped by the stuff and then it's like you know then you've also got so basically what you've got is you've got the, the high elves and um the marima the, the sea elf just fighting no we were the true we were the true alma but really like Throw this, there's a lot of shade thrown around everywhere and a lot of inconsistencies and stuff that you can sort of... Welcome to know. the Elder Scrolls, <laughs> ladies yeah. and well, gentlemen. super cool. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, we can, like, you know, their architecture's built for the heat and they have, like, you know, carefully planned ventilation ducts and so <laughs> That's on. That's really and cool, Red man. guards and stuff like that. But basically, you know, they've got, like, you know, very Middle Eastern, North African sort of architecture yeah, Very and smart stuff, stuff and built cool. to survive. Very ornate. Like, I, I do, I'm a big fan of um, that kind of architecture. I like everything a little bit more ornate and, um, well, it's arguably practical, but, like, less practical stuff. I do like... They, they have a nice combination desserts. of both. Like, there's mm. ornate when you need ornate, and then there's very smart designs, you know, made on purpose to withstand um, the deserts and I heat. Mean, we could absolutely, before we finish up, just shout out that we've done an ideal Elder Scrolls Six Hammerfell oh, where yeah. we basically did heaps of theoretical world building and, and like sort of map making and if stuff. If you so. like this podcast at all, then you will love that video. Yeah, so do give that a check. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to the Elder Scrolls podcast. It's been Michael, Scott and Drew and we look forward to nerding out with you again very soon.